Hello, and uh, welcome back to the Empyrean Path. Um, today we have a very special guest, Paul Della Rosa, who's uh, from Australia, but don't hold that against him, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, he's a, he's a writer based in uh, Melbourne. Are you in Melbourne at the moment? Yes, um, for, the, for the time being, but I'm going away very soon, like in a few days. But Melbourne for now, yeah. So uh, Paul's a, as a writer and his uh, debut short story collection, An Exciting and Vivid Inner Life, uh, is out with Alan and Unwin and uh, Serpent's Tale. Uh, and uh, so you're, you're on the kind of book tour now then? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, so it's, yeah, I was in Sydney yesterday, got back during the day yesterday, then did an event last night, and then today, yeah, this, and then a few other stuff. Are you a bit hungover? Uh... I don't even know if it's like being hungover or just sort of like exhausted continually, perpetually. But I think it approaches a lucid state, so it should be good for conversation. What's the weather like in Melbourne? It's currently raining. Um, I am in this really small Victorian terrace house that is just like very permeable to all sounds. So I can hear cars like driving by in the rain and, and stuff like that. That's quite nice. That's, that, that sounds quite pleasant. I actually really like the sound of the rain. So, I mean, I've never been to Australia. Um, is Melbourne like the kind of more sort of uh, bohemian city? So Melbourne's like the second city, right? Uh, so it's like there's lots of arguments between like Melbourne and Sydney. But yeah, Melbourne was the second right. founded city. I, th I think my history could be wrong. But yeah, I would say Melbourne's maybe more cosmopolitan and sort of maybe right. more artistic whereas i'd say sydney is more corporate and something like that right right yeah that's the impression i had it I, I had a flatmate uh in glasgow that was from sydney and he told me that i kind of like really messed with my head he said that it was just overcast and not even particularly hot because i just assumed it was really hot everywhere in australia melbourne's pretty overcast um it's yeah sort of yeah, it's weather changes really rapidly, so it can sort of be raining, you can have sunshine, it can be cold and hot, like all in one day, sort of between mm. 10 minute intervals, so it's pretty, but generally pretty overcast and yeah, especially winter, dark and cold. Mm. And did you like, are you from there originally or did you like move? Yeah, I grew up in Melbourne, um, so I sort right. of grew up, I guess in like a pretty far off suburb of Melbourne that's sort of like half bush, half sort of, I don't know, suburbia. Um, and <laughs> right. Now I live, yeah. yeah, pretty much in the city. So, yeah. Um, so maybe we'll start with like, uh, you could kind of maybe give us a bit of a description of your short story collection and maybe the kind of provenance of it and what the sort of, I know it's a bit difficult to kind of describe your own work, but... <laughs> yeah, so the collection's about 10 short stories that are all sort of following, generally speaking, sort of like millennial characters. So they range between like 20 and 35, all who are sort of either aimless or have sort of these really large aspirations. And it's about them sort of doing like stupid or dumb, outrageous things, trying to kind of, I guess, yeah. leap over that gap. Um, so... You know, one story is about the manager of a high fashion retail store. Another one yeah. is, you know, it's someone that works at a fast food pancake restaurant and he's like going into credit debt, paying for gay cam strip shows. And then there's like one about an mm. actress in LA that's sort of like a, I don't know, like a post Me Too story of this woman trying to like 
get her life together after a Me Too scandal sort of rocks. Uh, I really liked uh, your kind of style, obviously. I think the influence, I don't know, maybe you could correct me here, but the kind of like very sort of detached and passive style is very sort of reminiscent of Braced and Ellis, who I really loved. But would you say that's a kind of fair comparison or yeah it's a fair comparison and i'll i'll take any comparison with bread i think that's the only way you can take it yeah i'd say brett easton ellis and then maybe even later writers like say tal lin or or tessa moshveg but even further back like gene reese that's sort of like disaffected yeah. You get into kind of more territory I'm familiar. I, I, I haven't ever read Tao Lin, to be honest, but that whole kind of like scene just seemed really fucking insufferable. Like, I don't know, why is it alt lit or something? Yeah. The scene doesn't really interest me, but there are a few writers in it, but I think their work is pretty cool. What would you recommend on t- with regards to Tao Lin? I think his last novel, Leave Society, was really interesting. Um, Taipei right. is really, really great. I reckon mm. I'd go with Taipei first and then maybe shoplifting from American Apparel, which seems to be the one that people either yeah. love or hate. But I, yeah, I don't know. I think he's pretty much a genius. Yeah. Genius. Well, okay. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe I should, I should read him. Yeah, perhaps. I don't know. That's a very strong recommendation. Uh, so... Yeah, I mean, with regards to influences, genres, so you, you're kind of like into the, the you, you were kind of influenced by this sort of alt-lit scene, I guess, to some extent, no? Or I don't know if I was necessarily, say, influenced by this scene. I just like yeah. Al Lin um, and yeah. Megan Boyle. But that's also because I was sort of, tangentially connected to Tyrant books run by Giancarlo Di Trapano. So he did a lot of stuff for my career. And and there's a, yeah, I I don't know, maybe a a confluence of not aims, but sort of style and and what we want from literature, which crosses over. So, right, today we we, we wanted to kind of discuss uh, Byung-Chul Han. Yeah, so what what is maybe you could describe a little bit of your sort of like interest in his philosophy? Does it kind of pertain to your own writing? Is it something that's kind of had a kind of perhaps occluded influence on your own work or your kind of perspective of philosophy? But you're also you're also kind of a uh, academic uh, as well. Yeah, as a writer, <laughs> <laughs> leaving academia at the moment. <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah. So Byung Chul Han is this Korean German philosopher. And my relation to him was that I hadn't really read him while I was... I think maybe I read The Burnout Society years ago, but hadn't really read yeah. to him. And then during the lockdowns, like Melbourne was one of the most lockdown cities in the world, which was pretty fun <laughs> to live through. Um, what did you think about that? Did you, were you kind of annoyed by that or radicalised? Did it make you kind of... I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have like... You know, I don't like that whole kind of like uh, polarization of politics in in what it falls through. But I think what was interesting about the lockdowns is that I think our life is kind of like 
actually already increasingly looking like locked down life anyway, like really atomized. You just stay in your apartment. You don't. Yeah, I think so. I think it's really broken some chains of like <laughs> community that are probably like irreparable to some extent, I think. I think so. Um, and what people are, yeah. sorry, my cat's just getting away. Um, also what people sort of expect, and that can be like social services or events or getting together. And this idea mm. that, you know, I think working from home is like a very pernicious thing. And like most for sure. in our, you know, order, um, they're sold mm. to us one way and, and there are certain benefits, but they're pretty dystopian when, when those effects become kind of normalized totally. So it was sort of during that period. So I was sort of finishing my book. So I can't say that Pyung Shahan had a really large influence on the book because it was pretty much written. Um, but there are things that he talks about, or he has a really incredible way of sort of distilling things that are really wide in culture and sort of pointing them out. And I think a lot of the things he's interested in, whether it's digitization, a um, move from a disciplinarian society to an achievement one, was things that I was dealing with in, in sort of my 20s. Yeah, this kind of idea of, I guess he talked, he doesn't talk about it specifically as credentialism, as like sort of the functionary fetish, I guess, which, uh, I mean, I'm probably around the same age as you, kind of like millennial. I, I think it affects us a lot more than perhaps it affects even like the younger generation, certainly the sort of older one, <laughs> like the kind of Gen X generation weren't as fixated with sort of being functionaries as we are because <laughs> our, our, our lives are a lot more precarious i guess than... i think completely i think our lives are more precarious and things that say you know a, a philosopher like him will talk about or sort of often <clears throat> try and project into the future what it's leading towards we've sort of been living a lot of that or even say right. i think you know someone like jean baudrillard the writings that they were doing, you know, in the eighties and nineties almost feel like they've mm. only had like fulfillment now. Um, and I really, for think, sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a huge thing with, um, Han where he's sort of writing about, yeah, the idea of the achievement society and also the transparency society of like, you know, constant digital confession. We were sort of like the canaries mm. in a coal mine almost <laughs> that mm. kind of use. Yeah. Um, or at least I found that, especially growing up. I think he's got a very lucid uh, style um, and it's very kind of like generous kind of like writing style, which is very accessible to a lot of people, I think. For some reason, at certain points, that kind of irritates me because he's very kind of like, uh, I don't know, he has this kind of quality, which is, I know he's Korean, but I also find it in works from like Japanese that have been translated into English. They're very kind of like rarefied, but not particularly like, uh, too taxing but I don't know there's something that's been really broken in my brain I think for spending so long in academia that I've kind of like feel if you're not torturing yourself reading like philosophy or theory that it doesn't really come through to me anymore <laughs> but I really liked his book uh, was it Topologies of, of Violence because I was kind of reading that when I was finishing my own um, my own kind of like second academic monograph which I spent the last five fucking years right <laughs> which nobody's gonna read which i had my own kind of crisis on when i finished it within the last month um but i was it's about kind of masculinity and, and fascism and about sort of modernist fascist writers and what that kind of tells us about the relationship between technology and masculinity etc and i kind of like 
took a fairly sharp turn when I was writing the <laughs> conclusion. <laughs> so, I was going to see what happens with the peer review uh, process, but I, I, I haven't gone native, but <laughs> there's a kind of like very sort of fundamental questioning about what the, the role of sort of masculinity and violence in the relationship is. And I, I read his book, Topologies of Violence, and he makes some kind of very interesting um, points that kind of accord <laughs> with what I'm trying to like articulate as well. I guess have you have you read that? I haven't read Work. that's one of his only ones that I haven't haven't read. That one yeah. and the the one about Chinese pop culture or, or sort of taking things and using them. Yeah. Uh, the violence book is really good because he, he kind of talks about Walter Benjamin, he talks about Carl Schmidt and all these kind of writers, which I kind of engage with as well. But um, the other one, I think I read Burnout Society, again, like like you, I think, a long time ago. But um, but this particular interview is quite interesting because it sort of is quite relevant to what the, the kind of subject, I, I guess technological alienation is a kind of big factor in your fiction as well. But I wanted to read this kind of thing um, this quote here, because so his new book, I think, is called Undinge, or uh, I don't know how it's translated, non-objects, non-things. So he's talking about how the rule of objects has kind of receded, and what we have now is information, which is the opposite of the objects. He says that objects are more sort of generous. He says objects don't spy on us, that's why we trust them, in a way that we don't trust the smartphone. Every apparatus, any domination technique spawns its own devotional objects, which are used to promote submission. They stabilize dominion. The smartphone is a devotional object of the digital information regime. As a tool of repression, it acts like a rosary, which in its handiness the mobile device represents. To like is to pray digitally. We continue to go to confession. We expose ourselves voluntarily, yet we're no longer asking for forgiveness, but rather for attention. So that kind of like ties into what you're saying and i also was reminded when i was reading that about the 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 first story in your collection when the guy has a smartphone and i was wondering whether that kind of was relevant to what i don't know if that's something that's slightly autobiographical when you first got a smartphone maybe not in that particular context oh i think it's more of in that context that you have this really i was quite late to getting a smartphone so i grew up yeah me too when it was pretty like uh, like Y2K, like my first phone, I think was like the Motorola Razr, um, yeah. those flip phones. And though, you know, those phones had certain capacities, they just didn't have anywhere near what a smartphone can do, just in terms of the smartphone yeah. always connected to the internet. You're connected on mm. numerous apps and, you know, for all intents and purposes, I could probably exist without a laptop because I have my phone. Um, when did you get a smartphone? Uh, probably like 2010, 2011. Right. I got it in 2015 because I, I really re resisted for a very long time because I, I, I kind of felt in, instinctively like it was a kind of diabolical sort of thing. <laughs> and I thought it was kind of stupid and I, I always kind of thought, oh, I, don't, I don't want one. But then at a certain point, it was like so saturated that it was impossible to kind of not have one. Yeah, then, completely. You you know, there are certain services that you can't even access unless you have access to the app. Um, you know, I've worked in uh, government services and things where it's like any right. way of the public, like interacting with a body is just stripped out and it can only be done mm. through, through these chains. But 
with the smartphone, I guess I find it really fascinating when he sort of talks about it as a rosary object, but not yeah. only just a rosary, but something that's looking at us and, and surveilling us. So it's both a rosary on a, mm. on a kind of metaphorical level, but it's something more insidious. And it's this sort of digital prosthesis that we're always carrying around. Like if I don't have my phone on me, I forget yeah. those, you know. It's, it's a fetish object. It's like, it is exactly a fetish object, isn't it? I mean, because like you see the kind of like the curvature of the iPhone and it is a kind of like pleasing ergonomic sort of like object that you, you do kind of like have this quasi fetishistic kind of relationship, right? You're touching it, you're stroking it. And you're sort of like using it as this kind of like a part, an extension of yourself. And that's kind of really perverse. And this sort of dopamine release, um, which he sort of talks about of being like, high on information like i've had instances where you know i'll be out at a club and it's 3 a.m and it's like you know everyone's dancing or doing whatever and you hire something and and i'm sort of like either on my phone there or i'm sort of thinking really i want to go home and just like be on the internet yeah you want to experience it from a distance right you want to look at the photos you've taken and think oh yeah i remember that it's like not living the actual thing you're leaving you're kind of just experiencing things at as a remove from yourself as a form, as an attempt to sublimate something, which is too kind of unsettling to experience. Yeah. And, you know, just the ability of this, you know, small object we hold in our hand or we, you know, keep in our pocket, it just has access to everything and the amount of stimulus that you can get from it. Like I'm pretty anxious. I'm going away to a writer's colony for about five weeks on Wednesday and I don't yeah. have access to internet there other than going and like using a computer at the library and there's no phone reception because it's sort of in the middle of the woods of New Hampshire. Um, That's amazing. But it's, <laughs> I'd love to do that. I'm excited about it, but I'm also sort of terrified because I think, you know, to a certain extent you do become like an addict and what you're an addict mm. to is really just you know, these neurostimuli that are being fired off by, you know, whatever. So, I mean, at the moment, uh, I'm kind of like, I'm doing a sort of digital humanities, like sidestep, right? But uh, I've been kind of developing a sort of project, which is kind of like, looks at sort of like statistical analysis of like literature, etc. right? But I've, I've been kind of collaborating with this uh, data scientist and the sort of programmer, uh, at the University of Tokyo, and he said something really interesting to me because he's kind of like doing computer science, but he's also doing a kind of sociological critique of it, right? So he says that if you look at the various kind of like apps, social media apps, etc., Instagram, for example, the way that it's designed is designed with the, the specific kind of insidious intent to make you addicted, right? Because if you look at the search bar, it's right in the corner. What is actually present is this feed. And feeds of people that you don't even follow to keep you like swiping, <laughs> and it's a very kind of like simple way of looking at it, but it's actually like extremely like pernicious and uh, diabolical way to sort of design something to make you addicted. Right? Well, it's a, it's a diabolical machine. Like it really is yeah. demonic. <laughs> mm, it is no one hundred percent. And you can, you know, it's absolutely. I even find that during. COVID, what I found most difficult about the lockdowns was that in the first year I was, you know, I'm a writer. I spent a lot of time alone anyway during my early 20s. 
I was quite ill mm-hmm. for long periods of time, so I would be alone all the time then, then alone writing. Mm-hmm. And for the first year, you know, I would be doing, you know, I'd be writing hours a day, reading. I would be on like an exercise bike in my living room, reading Gravity's Rainbow or something. And then the second right. year, when it just kept going, I just sort of, the book was done and I almost just fell into using my phone, like hours upon hours upon hours. And it felt almost lobotomizing completely. My ability to think was constrained, everything, but you would just keep reaching for it and keep reaching for it. My specific kind of theory about this, and I kind of talked about it in this, like, I mean, it's, it's, it's a fairly like dense theory, theory article that's going to be coming out of Angalaki <laughs> relatively soon. But like, I wrote it with uh, my friend Christos and, we talk about how uh, this kind of notion of the ideological aesthetic, how ideology and aesthetics have become essentially the same thing within what you have now, which is this kind of technological total state, right? Which is has replaced kind of national states, which are kind of, to some extent, arbitrary distinctions. And what you have is a technological total state, which is run by a sort of these kind of semio corporations, right? Et cetera. And the, the way, I mean, you have to think about what the kind of intent is and the intent is to keep you scrolling and to keep you sort of like preoccupied and keep you like engaged to a certain extent hyper politicized to a certain extent but hyper politicized to the extent that you're also depoliticized like you express your kind of like status as this kind of bad subject as in rebellion against these kind of like certain uh things you're kind of like expressing but it's a circular discourse because you're you're tweeting out your opinion about something you're trying to like (laughs) go against somebody else but it's all contained within this kind of like circular discourse of social media in which it can be sort of like um controlled essentially right it's it keeps you stupefied and like compliant in a way that's far more effective than if they were kind of purposely sort of repressive. Yeah, I think that's completely, completely, completely true. And that's something I think that Han talks about a lot in the Transparency Society. Um, So this idea that we're just overwhelmed with information now and we can never really either take time or effort to get to know someone. Mm. There's no other. You've got to sort of have everything Mm. about you, you know, your bio has to include X flag, Y flag, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Because it's the, you're kind of like, sorry, you're kind of like externalizing the constitution of your ego onto (laughs) this kind of like digital tabula rasa to some extent. And this is the only thing that justifies your existence. So for most people who don't think too deeply about that, they see husband, father, writer, (laughs) etc. on their kind of like handle. Because that's the only way that they feel that they could constitute their ego. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's really... Um, you, you sort of notice it a lot. Or then this sort of thing of, you know, copy pasta online where these sort of phrases that get retooled and repurposed and sort of reshared again yeah. and again. And it's like, you know, everyone will be making political statements. But you do have the question, which is, is there a politics in this at all? And often... Often there sort of isn't. No. It's just this sort of... <laughs> there <is. laughs> yeah, so yeah. essentially, and it sort of reminds me of, um, you know, even at the moment, like selling a book and, you you know, you'll be get questions like, oh, you know, so, you know, are you a, are you a communist? Are you against capitalism? And, and you can talk about those things, but it's like to actually... It doesn't go, matter. It, it doesn't matter, but also to go into it, you have to, <laughs> you have to be able to discuss 
things or, or talk about them at a level that isn't, you know, wearing a tote bag that says Marxist. Because <laughs> like, it's just yeah. this yeah. sort of This is what a feminist looks like. Um, <laughs> and yeah. then it's also this thing that happens online where there's that I sort of, I'm sure someone else has referred to it as this, but I often think of mm. um, semi-inflation. So it's like words yeah. get inflated with meaning to an extent that they don't actually have any meaning. Um, so, you know, we'll often be talking about community, but, but what community yeah. is that referring to when you're, when you're putting it in a tweet? Is the community the community of people who tweet about X thing or is it a real sort of embodiment? And there's even a Byung-Chul Han quote that I quite like, which, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but it's the commodification or commoditization of community is the death of community. Mm. It can't exist in that arena. Yeah. I didn't know that he actually talked about that specifically, but I, I thought about that for a long time. Like a few years ago when people really started, so the web 2.0 things started talking about, everybody started using the word community far more. I, I noticed that because I'm really kind of like aware to these kind of subtle changes in the lexicon, etc. right? But people started invoking community far more when the notion of community was actually disintegrating, right? And I find that really, really fucking interesting. It's just like people say, oh my, like communities of this X, Y, and Z. But like the fact is that there are no communities anymore. You know, you have like temporary sort of alliances. The only sort of community I could think that really exists is like blue check Twitter. They seem to be far more loyal to each other than anything else. <laughs> to, to, you know, to what extent? To when it's expedient for it not to be yeah. one person, that person or something like that. And I, yeah. I don't think in a real community you should be, you know, living in a state of terror. And I would say a lot of those people really are living in a state of terror. And that's why they tend to um, just repeat what other people are tweeting. Because to tweet yourself would be too dangerous in that. Right, yeah. <laughs> so I only got a Twitter account last month. <laughs> I'd resisted for 10 years but I felt like the world's ending anyway so I might as well just like get a Twitter account but uh, I, I just stopped using it now I think I haven't really used it for the last three weeks because I had COVID actually have you had COVID yet? I have I'm in yeah. mortal fear of getting it again before I have to fly um, but I've right, had yeah. all of these events so I, I don't know I felt very manic <laughs> doing that. yeah but they don't test anymore like even well, American stuff. They just stopped. Te- there was an entry requirement from Australia that you needed to have a negative test before boarding. And yeah. I think that dropped about a week and a half ago. Um, yeah. But I do have a care for the community that if I, you know, am positive for COVID, I would prefer not to be, you know, traveling on a plane. <laughs> I don't want to like give it to anybody either. I'm in Japan and like people are still wearing masks outside here. And I only recently decided, like, I'm not fucking doing that anymore because it's so stupid. People are on their bikes with masks on. Like, I think they're going to have to bring in a law to stop people wearing masks here. (laughs) It's kind of ridiculous. And I wonder if that's different um, culturally. I know that here, and particularly, like, Australia does have this really intense relationship with the States which we tend to import things. So if something Mm. is being spoken about in the States, we'll have, we'll be talking about it here 
often when yeah. there are things happening here that nobody's talking about at all, but probably deserves a lot more attention. Um, Rob Doyle, my mate Rob Doyle, the novelist, he said that something similar about Ireland, that Ireland's contemporary Ireland is so enthralled to like everything I think American. It's happening every, everywhere. And it UK really as well, this, I think. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's this, I really do think it's a form of cultural imperialism. No, 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 I noticed that as well. Like, do, do you know what actually I've done in the last three months? And it's one of the best things I've done is I've blocked The Guardian on all of my devices. And I haven't I haven't actually read anything in The Guardian in a very long time. Because, I, I, like, growing up, growing up in Britain, everybody uses the same excuse. Oh, it's the only paper, like, you could use. But, like, it's that's not an excuse to read it. I think it's like it's an incredibly uh, tendentious newspaper, and especially within the last five years, I can't really stand it anymore. But it's kind of weird because, like, I started reading the BBC News website, right? And BBC obviously is a kind of like propaganda arm of the British state, right? But at the same time, it still kind of retains a certain like journalistic objectivity in the sense that they just report things as they happen and don't really give a sort of opinion in it. And I, fi- I find that almost every single journalist in The Guardian is just an opinion columnist. Like, they don't, they're not really journalists anymore. They're kind of just, like, <laughs> giving a, a very sort of tendentious, very sort of, like... Admittedly, I don't read that much news now, which is possibly <laughs> bad. Um... I don't think it's bad at all. And I understand where that impulse comes from, because actually... Even worse for me than social media addiction was like news addiction, I think. Just reading newspapers and current events. <laughs> well, I think it's what, something I found really intriguing, especially during COVID, was the... I know it had already existed, but it just seemed to be this huge thing that what we would do now is have news stories that had live updates on them. So yeah, it wasn't, yeah you know, traditionally what an article would be, would it would be something sort of fixed, right? It would be, this is the article, this is the information. But with live coverage, you would have journalists for, you know, sometimes 24 hours, which is, you know, I guess connected to even like cable news or something like that. But it would yeah. be every time you look at the article, there's new information, there's new information, there's new case numbers, there's new something. And I found a lot of people in my life had become really addicted to it. And it really does make yeah, me the news think cycle. of, yeah, but it really does make me think yeah. of, um, you know, Bim Chul Han talking about us being addicted to information and that information yeah. is acting, you know, as a stimulus rather than anything that you can think about. Like if we're in the middle of a pandemic, you know, and you're being bombarded with these numbers all the time, what does that mean? Yeah. Do you need to know all of that information? You don't need to do any of that. You don't need to do any of that. And, and like the the whole pandemic thing made me completely sour on like the, the, the entire profession of contemporary journalism because I think they've really entered into a very cynical sort of calculation in the sense that they, they realize that they just report on every single thing and there's no kind of standards at all within journalistic practice because they're all like pretty young and sort of ambitious in their own sort of very sort of deluded way, I guess. So they want to sort of like carve a sort of some sort of semblance of a career, effectively like structurally impossible sort of system, right? Much like I'm in academia as well, I guess. You know, I do think the news is important. I don't really read any good stuff. You know, there's a need to know world events and things like that. But I think what interests me is that um, 
aspect of technology on ourselves and particularly our psyches and how it kind Mm. of reformats us and sort of changes us in certain ways. And I think that addiction to information is really, and and the reason why that is, is because everyone knows that, you know, how you make money online is you need clicks and you need people to go back. So it's similar to how an app does that addictive thing that everyone needs to do it because that's this, you know, internet economy. But like, it's interesting because those really um, inherent structural things, I actually think have so much more influence of on us than whatever it is we're reading or whatever the information is we're consuming. No, I think that's a good point. Definitely. Um, it's actually the the modes of dissemination, I guess, that are more important. But as 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 I kind of like said, it's made in a very insidious way and purposefully, right, to kind of like stupefy you and keep you addicted and keep you scrolling, right? So, like, the only way at this point, I guess, is to completely sort of consciously kind of disconnect from this whole sort of paradigm, right? So, I mean, like, I, 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 what I was kind of looking at is sort of theories of like technology, I guess, philosophical theories. And um, I guess Adorno sort of wrote about this quite in various different ways, but I came across this scholar and he's really interesting. He wrote only like one book because he uh, studied philosophy and then he went and became a palliative care, like doctor, he went and studied medicine. But then he wrote up his, I, I imagine what this is kind of like, PhD thesis. His name's like Eric Krakauer. I was thinking maybe he's like Siegfried Krakauer's son or something. I'm not entirely sure because he seems to like know a lot of philosophers personally. And <laughs> so he wrote this very kind of like obscure book. I can't imagine it was like really read that much. Uh, it was quite difficult for me to find, but it was called um, The Disposition of the Subject. And it's about Adorno's kind of dialectic, what he describes as this dialectic of technology, right? So I mean, there's this kind of like constant sort of battle between subjectivity and uh, against technology. And he kind of says that the dialectic of subjectivity and sort of how sort of technology dominates, you know, it dominates nature, right? This is sort of nature dominating subject and it creates this kind of condition of possibility, right? But the inevitable result, he says, is this kind of uh, the creation of not a sort of autonomous human subject, but of like kind of very much a kind of heteronomous uh, object of like technological domination. Like it's almost inevitable that more technological progress will lead to sort of the creation of these kind of like the, the sort of heteronomous in the sense that they're individuals, but like they're ones that can be like dominated quite easily by technology. So like when I kind of read that, I thought, it's it's almost completely inevitable. There's no kind of like accord that you could have with like more technology, more sort of like movements towards like artificial intelligence, more sort of like solutions. There's no kind of like technological solution to this form of alienation. So, I mean, the only solution is sort of technological pessimism, I think, right? <laughs> it's the kind of very like sort of Luddite philosophy in the sense that you need to kind of like in, initiate some sort of rupture, which brings like machines to just basically so sort of functional so sort of <laughs> utile things that you use to achieve certain things just to like communicate and not anything else because otherwise there's no kind of there's no end to the sort of forms of domination and subjugation that you can be subject to i think well i think that's partially true i don't think technology or more technology gives us the answer but i also often think about 
you know, certain aspects of the technology that we use that really doesn't need to be what it is. So sample, you know, we exist in this like surveillance capitalism, which has since made Mm -hmm. surveillance much easier for, you know, in like five eyes, international spy agencies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But what actually made us give up our privacy was, was sometimes actually the most stupid thing of all, which is it's actually just to make, us buy products that's literally exactly, yeah. like all, all of that internet tracking all of it comes from yeah it comes from that and that's what we've given I actually, yeah. um and something that um han talks about in the transparency society is that what makes this sort of digital panopticon effect so total yeah. is that we've actually been trained by these technologies to constantly confess and offer up our thoughts. So we have to, you know, be seen online. We have to, you know, do tweets. Yeah. We have to give attention. But then mm-hmm. in reality, all, all that is, is just giving all of this sort of surveillance data and the complete absolution of privacy. But I read yeah. in, um, do you ever read Dean Kissick's column for Spike, The Downward Spiral? Yeah, I read it a few times. Yeah, yeah. I quite like Dean's I column. Mean... Um, he seems all right, but I mean, I don't know. There seems to be some sort of like, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say. It. <laughs> I, th- I think that there is some sort of like fairly cynical kind of motivations behind his his uh, work, but whatever. I don't know. Well, I, I I don't know. I think it comes from a pretty genuine. Well, from what I gather, I feel like it's pretty genuine a lot of the time. I think there's a lot of scene around yeah. it. Um, but he wrote something. I mean, I don't really know him for sure, so I'm yeah. not. That's probably not. Like, you know, it's probably not fair to make that kind of judgment. I, I judge things very superficially. But so I also I also kind of take uh, solace in the fact that I'm usually right when I make a cynical judgment. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah. did a piece that was talking about... Um, one of them was sort of watching the Ukraine war from afar. Mm-hmm. And there was this moment where he talks about um, this instance as which are really awful and horrible of these people who have gone to Ukraine to fight and are then posting and streaming while they're doing it, which is then giving away their location and things like that and being told, you know, stop doing it, stop posting. But the the compulsion to post is so strong that it's impossible. And I think that that's, you know, that's something that's even in that, um, first story in the book, which is this person mm. has gone somewhere, per, you know, without a phone, but then once mm. he has a phone, he can't help but, you know, blow up his life <laughs> again because it's... So, I mean, um, as I say, I got I got a smartphone in 2015 and I think it's by far one of the worst things I've ever done. <laughs> it's not to say I'm, like, completely sort of addicted because I see some people that... I don't know. I, I feel like if you took their phone away, their entire life would sort of fall apart. They rely on them so heavily to constitute their sort of ego that <laughs> I don't know how they would really even cope with the world or interact with it if it didn't have that sort of outlet. And that kind of Ukraine thing is actually a very interesting thing because people can't really do anything unless other people sort of see them doing it or acknowledge that they're doing it. Otherwise, they have no way of sort of really knowing their life right (laughs) it's a very dark thing i think it's horrible it's horrible and you know that's even part of the the title of my short story collection i think even sort of like 
speaks to that a little bit because it's an exciting yeah. vivid inner life and it's sort of partially ironic because one has to ask yeah. you know, what kind of inner life do we actually have yeah. now <laughs> i mean mediated. I, I really liked the the fact that you use inner life because i mean in, in my novel i kind of like use that term as well because <laughs> it's about kind of like romantic misadventure right and this is like it also kind of framed it in 2015 which i thought i think retrospectively was a big turning point it was also like the time that i sort of got the smartphone it's not like a completely it's not an autobiographical novel to like any extent but it was significant in the sense that it was this idea of trying to sort of like um perceive someone else's inner life and then at the cusp of it being sort of something that's kind of imperceptible and you know like the spoiler is it's always imperceptible but it's also at the sort of cusp of things being publicly available and using that to kind of judge how somebody is and try to divine their inner life and the kind of process that came before where there was a kind of inherent mystery to existence <laughs> and to sort of life and romance and like all this kind of thing so i, I really like the title <laughs> it kind of really spoke to me as well and i think it's that yeah, I think what you just said then is really true. That kind of, uh, yeah, the the need for more mystery or like the profusion of information actually kind of does yeah. less than it. It never does what it says it's going to do. It's always mm. a kind of reversal. So I mean, I I, I kind of wrote about this um, for for uh, my friend Adam Lehrer's uh, Substack, Safety Propaganda. And I, I was kind of like really interested in this kind of all-pervasive infantilism that exists <laughs> that's kind of inculcated by social media, right? And again, this is a kind of intended effect, right? <laughs> it's a kind of like feature of the systems which they put in place, right? Not only it's meant, it's meant to kind of make you, make you infantilize, make you sort of addicted, right? And I was sort of really interested in, I don't know, like, why is that? Why, why, <laughs> why do we feel like this kind of need to sort of regress when you're given what, because it's giving you what you've always kind of wanted, but when you kind of achieve it, it's a hollow sort of like price. It's such a complicated thing because that infantilization is, re is really everywhere in culture and particularly on yeah. social media. Like I have a, a funny experience which was for a few years i actually had a job where occasionally i'd have to write tweets um the, like right right the company right handle, yeah. <laughs> um, or, or do that kind of copy stuff and it's really funny right. because it would always be like oh paul you know you can you can do this you're a writer this, this should be easy right. whenever i'd have to write yeah. a tweet i would just be um almost like language didn't exist i would feel like to do a tweet in the way that it wanted to be I'd have to write mm. like a child that's just been sort of like hit in the head with something really heavy. There, there is that element of it, isn't it? My experience with Twitter was always very detached before because I would just see it and then that was it. I'd see it incidentally, but having a kind of account, I kind of really got to grips with this sort of like language in it. And there's something that's inherently kind of like limiting and sort of infantilized, self-infantilizing about the language that's used, even when it's kind of like communicating something that's, like putatively quite complex or sort of something, right? This whole idea of a thread of breaking something down into sort of like various sort of easily digestible parts, etc. It's really fascinating to me because I can't yet see at what yeah. point does that come from. Sometimes I wonder if it's that 
as there's more information, or this is something um, the author James Bridle writes about in the New Dark Age. Yeah. This sort of idea yeah, right. that, I like that book. Yeah, I like that was, that. That was <laughs> but the the more and more information we have, the more data we have, the more actually sort of chaotic the world is. We we tend mm. to sort of regress because you want to grab onto something simple. Um, mm. But but I sort of see it everywhere. Like I even find it very interesting um, when you see something like <laughs> RuPaul's Drag Race or something. Right. When you're when you see it and sort of like the colors and the staging and everything, it, it really resembles more than anything a, a children's show. Um, right. And I see that yeah everywhere in terms of how people talk about issues, how they'll often sort of speak in in platitudes that always kind of actually negate the, the reality of the world. And I think even in this interview, Pyong Chul Han talks about it at one point where he says, the more and more we run on information, um, the less we're tangibly collect- connected to reality. It's like the reality of complexity and all of these things sort of dissipates and we're just left, I don't know, screaming our like 120 char- or 240 characters. You know, there's this kind of unofficial mantra of the social media age. You're like, I hear you, I see you. I always find that really interesting because it's it, it just kind of breaks down the sort of fundamental sort of like impulse of it. It's just like, I need to use this to justify my own existence. Like it's a very kind of basic ontological kind of need, right? And then that's how people sort of approach it. It's so weird because I don't know, like people... The, the, the very notion that you could have a sort of like satisfying life and existence with not being on display, with not engaging, with not being recognized is completely alien to most people. It's even fascinating how these things get displaced. Like something I notice is that I quite like, um, I quite like podcasts and I, I even run an interview series yeah. with artists. And what's fascinating is that I quite like hearing conversation. I like being in conversation um, yeah. I find that very gratifying. So I do like hearing other people's conversations, but sometimes I get the sense that people don't really have these conversations <laughs> in real life anymore. So we need the the pretext of a podcast that's being recorded and then displayed. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what the weird thing is, right? I started doing podcasts and stuff just because of lockdown. Um, like I moved away from the UK and like most of my friends in like 2016, I lived in like Europe and then I moved to Japan just at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020. So I'm quite isolated here, generally speaking. And (laughs) doing like things like podcasts is like one of the only things I can kind of like talk to people in a proper way almost. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it, that's kind of really sort of depressing when you think about it. But I think that's one of the ways in which this whole sort of pandemic situation has kind of really exacerbated and accelerated the kind of alienation that everybody is sort of subject to. Well, I think that's what I, you know, whenever I think about the pandemic, I, I really sort of think about, um, you know, the reality of, of the virus and, and measures and things like that. I'm more of... <laughs> Yeah. personally interested or fascinated in how um, a lot of the things that have occurred during the pandemic have really just been accelerations and they tend mm. to be things that were already designed or intended to happen. Like I see it a lot even say, you know, as an academic dealing with the university, it was like, yeah. you know, the universities 
long-term plan of digitization that people have been struggling against for a long time <clears throat> in one fell swoop they could do 10 years of of cuts and yeah. things it's just overnight um, and yeah. we're still not we're still not past it fully and that's why i find it interesting things like working from home though you know it obviously has a lot of benefits for people and it can make their lives sort of easier it also completely mm. dissolves the difference between, you know, the home space and the life outside of work and this. And that's yeah. what Twitter does as well. It's all this... Um, compl- I absolutely hate working from home. I think it's really put a strain on <laughs> my kind of personal relationship with my wife. Uh, I mean, because, like, it's... it's I don't see any sort of advantage it unless you really have, like you know kids like a few kids i would say and you need to be like a lot of different places at the same time other than that i don't know i don't really see any advantage in working from home teaching online is is awful it's like (laughs) it's i I can't imagine what it's like to have been an undergraduate in the last three years um a lot of them have been doing the online thing for the whole time (laughs) i really feel for them because when i was an undergrad when i was in uni i didn't even go to class i usually just like went out and like (laughs) had fun and stuff right well it's like connected even to that idea um of like the good life or the life of the mind (laughs) or like that there are you know more important things than doing our bullshit jobs and i also think people don't really or I found students, I don't, I don't like teaching over Zoom. I really, really hate it. Um, but I don't think students don't engage enough or it's sort of, I, I don't know. It just doesn't seem to work. And I think it, it just so much is lost and there's not that ability for people to connect, you know, after class, before class to sort of, you know, talk about things or get excited. It's very much like, here's my one hour, two hour tutorial, whatever it is. And then I'll log on to work, <laughs> do that. And it's like, yeah, it's that atomization of time um, and life. Yeah. And it's all connected. It's horrible. Like, I mean, and, and, and the kind of like logical sort of like criticism is the one that they don't really want to sort of like confront. Like if you're teaching online, then what's the point in even doing it live? Like, what is, like, why don't you just get you can get someone far better than me to teach the material, and I'll admit that. Right? <laughs> and then you can get like the best teacher in the world, and then you can just get them to watch videos of the teaching. Will the university just turn into masterclass? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. What What are the material? But also, I think that just comes through again with this idea of you know relentless utilitarian optimization where the optimization is like you know what that runs on is the profits that they generate by cutting costs and then as well as you know i also just think there's a lot of bullshit where a lot of data can just be completely fudged so you can go off a student survey of classes and go oh who actually there's not that many people that actually answer student surveys like like uh truthfully right because I always find when I did a student survey, like, if they liked me, they always just gave me, like, a good, like, review, right? And, and, and unless they really disliked you, I don't really see how that's really, like, a accurate reflection of what the class is actually like. Um, but yeah. it's just very, yeah, I don't know. I, f- I always find that whenever I talk about um, the university or something like that, I just become really... Yeah. 
um, depressed. <laughs> yes, that was pretty depressing. Yeah, let's move on to something else. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I guess it just ties into the whole sort of like alienation thing. But yeah, it's. I think it's a strange situation at the moment because almost all the sort of like the bourgeois professions have been completely sort of destabilized, even like law. Because it's, I mean, I guess it's just overproduction, isn't it? Of the sort of PMC class <laughs> without the kind of like requisite sort of expansion of the need. <laughs> yeah, in what, in what regard? Okay, yeah, I guess that the the argument is there's lots more people going to university and there's lots of people doing PhDs, I guess, right? <laughs> but at the same time, I'm not entirely convinced that all those people are studying the subjects and there's not even a requirement for those subjects, I guess, within the kind of emergent economies, which are economies of just basically just like asset stripping on various levels yeah, yeah, right <laughs> yeah and then there's the question of like i find it interesting a lot of the unis here um what i find really fascinating um and i guess this is in all forms of life because it's in every job i've ever worked is that yeah. the money that's spent on the actual thing that is the thing that you're doing so the teaching of university the life of the mind all, all of these things right, right. is by far outspent on on marketing to market to yeah. like prospective students and then the language yeah. always changes and so it can be you know yeah. there's a lot of unis now that you know you're going to come here and you'll have job ready skills and it's like okay hmm. well when was the university's role to just fit into fit into you know you, you do this you get why you do why even though that's a fantasy yeah. it doesn't exist anymore um but you see it yeah sort of on every on every level um, which is this mm. kind of uh, PR management and branding takes precedence over everything. So our information yeah. or reality is superseded. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, that is true. I don't, I don't mean to keep talking about academia at all because it's pretty fucking boring, to be honest, to some extent. But I'll say this, right? Okay, that is completely true. Uh, they spend most of their money... Because, I mean, you've got all these people that just like functionaries from the corporate world that get jobs in the university administration, right? And they drive the agenda. They spend all the money on, like, opening up campuses in Beijing and, like, Dubai or something and uh, building new buildings or capacity, right? And the argument is you could spend that on hiring more staff, right? But the, the, the another reality which people aren't really ready to acknowledge, especially academics, is the overproduction of people that do PhDs vastly outstrips even a kind of capacity to teach <laughs> students in in within a sort of expanded academic field as well, right? Because the people, even when you have a PhD student within a department right now, they struggle to get teaching as sort of like adjuncts or TAs, etc. as well, right? I mean, when I did my PhD 2011, 2010, when I started, there was like 10 people starring at the same time as me, right? And, like, there wasn't enough teaching to sort of even go around then, right? Because there wasn't enough students doing, like, English Lit, right? Well, you even see that in, um, you know, there's a, even a story in, in my book which is set at a, of an adjunct at the university. Yeah, 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 um, yeah, I remember that one. <laughs> and, yeah, it's just really fascinating because I think again and again, a lot of these industries, they do create a surplus, but they also 
create, you know, all of us exist as this like precariat cognitarian or cognitarian yeah. workers. Um, yeah. But our positions in that are often justified through marketing and ourselves internalizing these ideas. Like if I, you know, publish X amount mm. of papers, if I teach X amount of things, that will mean I'll have more teaching when in reality yeah. there's no path to a career. The only path I think, and I can see this like inside baseball, is to be politically reliable and to be sort of like <laughs> of a certain like kind of pedigree in class. And that's the only thing that would, that, and that even then is no guarantee. You know, like I have friends who are like, like privately educated Oxford PhDs who are still within the same kind of like post, <laughs> post-doc precarious contract sort of like run, right? Because like there's one job that comes out every six months you know what i mean so it's 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 even even being of the right pedigree within the sort of pmc class being exactly like the people who you want to work with being politically reliable is not enough to get your job no and i think this stuff is also um much broader than the academy like i recently read a really great book by this social anthropologist, and she's Italian, Giulia Mincitieri, the most beautiful job in the world. And it was all about the fashion industry and doing lots of interviews with people in that industry at all levels. Um, And what sort of comes up again and again is that people accept terrible conditions on the hope that this virtual life that they're imagining themselves in will somehow open up to them and incredible things yeah. will happen for them. They'll have a place at the table. Yeah. And the argument that she sort of makes is that, you know, this is an extremely broken and exploitive model, but rather than mm. the fashion industry changing to a more equitable one, what's actually occurred is that at every point of every profession is turning more and more <laughs> into that exploitive system. And the university yeah. is just exactly the same. Well, no, no, exactly. You're right. And I think that's why I kind of liked uh, the short story, Com, uh, because it, it, is that based on you working? Like, no, I've in, never worked in that. No. <laughs> right. I was just wondering because, uh, yeah, you seem to have like a pretty good sort of like knowledge of the ins and outs of this kind of like industry, et cetera. But that, that was a very good story because it kind of really brought out what you're kind of talking about. Um but I guess Catherine, Catherine Lou's kind of a thesis about the PMC class. Yeah, virtual horses. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It really kind of applies to that sort of model as well. Because, but what I'm more interested in, I guess, is like, why? What's the motivation? Because everybody knows that even if you get like a job within these kind of like incredibly compromised, the vestiges of what's remaining of these institutions, like even that job is like not guaranteed for the rest of your life, right? Even if you have a place at the table, everybody knows that it's 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 all sort of like precarious. It's all ephemeral. It's all temporary. So, I mean, everybody is collectively sort of deluded into believing that. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I don't think people want to... Like, personally, I actually think we've, we're undergoing a, a sort of phase shift at the moment. Like, I know when I was writing the book and growing up, it was yeah. living in this... Yeah, I suppose it is an achievement society, but there was also this idea really that was really instilled in me growing up where, and I was in public school and then, and then whatever, which was that, you know, you can be whatever you want to be. You can, you know, you have to self-actualize yourself by doing your dream job or or what you love or or whatever. And, and, you know, if you apply yourself 
that will that will manifest or occur. And everything you consume in media is, you know, insane displays of wealth. Um, whether that's like in reality television of like Real Housewives or or competitions like American Idol or, or whatever, it's like this yeah. idea of movement or a path. And that mm. I think a lot of people have soured on in the past ten years, and sort of are sort of realizing that's not true. But I wonder at the moment if we're sort of shifting now to this idea of constant austerity to everyone but actually everyone should accept that because more deserving people will now be elevated to like the vestiges of, of a system that doesn't, that's falling apart anyway. And it's just someone else will be exploited. It's more of like, you know, someone gets a job, someone does, but the actual structure of all of these things don't change. It's just sort of no. their, their branding of, of their own corporations. And I think that's yeah. where, you know, I think there's a moment in, one of my stories, the one with the academic, where she goes into mm. her sort of like shared office that's not her office, it's her office for like an hour. And behind yeah. her is a poster that she's a digital artist. And behind her is a poster that says, you know, the future of digital art is female. Um, and, and it might be, I'm not against that, but it's more of like the university would be using these things to brand themselves in marketing when the reality is this that your material situation yeah. as a digital artist, whether you're a woman or a man, is completely, yeah. 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 Did you read? Did you read Nina Pyre's book? Um, what do men want? Masculinity and its discontents. And uh, I guess it's about. I mean, I, I I would say she's still sticking to a very sort of like feminist position, but she's kind of like going against the sort of central <laughs> shibboleth of contemporary feminists discourse which is that all manifestations of masculinity are inherently irredeemably toxic etc right so she's arguing against that and she kind of argues from a very kind of like um even-minded very sort of like fair and english way that you need to be empathetic towards men she she brings up uh, jean baudrillard's uh kind of very controversial position that he said that i've never really understood feminism because uh, it seems to be a really advanced form of ressentiment, right? He said that it's about, they, they have this kind of discourse about legal recrimination and sort of like reparation, etc. But what is really at stake is symbolic power and women have never really lacked symbolic power. And <laughs> I think that is something, I think it pissed off a lot of people because I think he really got to the, the, the heart of the matter. And I think it does, it's not even only relevant to contemporary feminism because I think what is the main measure within technological society, within kind of total state run by semio corporations is that symbolic power is the most important form of power that exists, right? And I guess that people operate on the assumption that there's a finite amount of symbolic power available and you need to sort of gain as much as you can for yourself <laughs> and this is also i guess one of the motivations of how you curate your life on social media i guess and also how you kind of attempt to navigate careers etc and i guess you talk about that as well because in that again not to talk about that one short story <laughs> too much but when he spends that obscene amount of money on getting this kind of vintage piece of clothing that he wants to wear in case this sort of like the owner designer comes to see him that's very much about this kind of negotiation with sort of symbolic power as a means to kind of 
attain other forms of achievement, I guess. Well, I think there's that element in this story, definitely, of symbolic power. I'm trying to remember if I've, yeah. I've read Baudrillard's essay on that. I tend to mainly read, um, you know, Simulacra or The Conspiracy of Art, yeah. the ones I've supposedly most... So it wasn't an essay, it was an interview he did um, in the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't, I'll, I'll send it to you if I can remember what it was. But yeah, Nina, Nina talks about that. Yeah, the things that interest me or even with say Byung Chul Han, which is that it's very yeah. related to uh really, really deep structures that are kind of like restructuring mm. our subconsciouses and our id and sort of how we interact and act, and that those often are taking place without us realizing them and then never really talking about them or articulating them. And I think that's what I find very exciting about a philosopher like him or someone even like Bifo, Franco Barati does, does things similar. Yeah, I really liked his, his book Heroes, actually, and I, I talk about, I engage with that um, quite a lot because I, he, he can, I got this, this the, the term CMU corporations from him because he talked about how, it's something I guess that's kind of like a, a resonant theme through all the kind of philosophers we possibly refer to, but this idea that this inability to distinguish between actuality and virtuality is what's causing this kind of universal derangement. This kind of like <laughs> pathologizing madness. Because everybody's completely like like mentally disbalanced to to a greater or lesser extent in the contemporary moment, you know? <laughs> and I think that's 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 I mean it's a it's a kind of like big claim, but I think it's more true than not. Well, I think it's the it's the sort of thing of ex- extremism um, that mm. occurs, and that sort of thing of well, what I like about Bifo is when he really talks about, you know, things like not quite the echo chamber, but Byung Chul Han will talk about this, but this kind of our technologies of being these sort of like narcissistic mirrors that surround ourselves, and in that. Mm you know, when light hits one, it tends, it's almost getting stronger when it's sort of like contained in that moment rather than, yeah, people, I, I suppose, talking to each other and confronting other people as real human beings. Uh, maybe we'll wrap up. Do you want to plug your book a little bit more? Uh, yeah, so it's called An Exciting and Vivid in a Life. Um, internationally, it's probably best to the UK, Serpent's Tale, have it there. It's in Australia. It's not yet in the States, um, but people can order them from, yeah, UK bookshops or things like that. Awesome. And do you have any, like, readings uh, coming up, like, in... anywhere in the world? Um, I'm doing some stuff. I'm speaking at the Edinburgh Book Fair in August and then a few things in London that haven't been finalised yet. It's sort of, yeah, I'm mainly focused <laughs> at the moment on my time in the wilderness away from everything yeah well i hope you find some perspective <laughs> and spiritual epiphany i'm very jealous actually i'd like to do something like that that would be cool anyway thank you very much for, for joining us and for the interesting conversation join us next time when we'll talk about something else mm-hmm.